0: That's my favorite hymn. I uh, love to hear you sing it. That's the hymn that I always sing in the shower. I just have a a real appreciation for the words of that uh, that song. Uh, Actually, going back to Hardin's comment, I would rather have you talk than have me talk. But I have to do something to justify my uh, existence. And so I'm going to talk this morning for about 40 minutes. Uh, You're supposed to listen. If you get through before I do, it's all right to leave, (laughs) but I hope you'll uh, stay with us. John 16, will you turn there, please? 16th chapter of John. The incarnation is the central fact of of Christian belief. We We know that's true. God became flesh and dwelt among us, as John puts it. We wouldn't know what God was like apart from the manifestation of God in Jesus Christ. We wouldn't realize God's love for us, His willingness to do everything to save us. I think the world has pretty much forgotten the incarnation. It certainly is true in this Christmas season when they ought to be remembering, uh, recalling that, that fact, but they've forgotten. Carolyn and I we were shopping yesterday in a mall nearby, doing some shopping for our out-of-town out of family. And it struck me after I got back home that I didn't see any, any reminders of our Lord's uh, coming and manifesting himself in flesh. I'm sure there were some there, but I don't recall. I saw a lot of Santas, but I saw no crashes. I saw no indicators that the world even remembered the purpose of Christmas or the reason for it. That's sad. Uh, we Christians can't forget that's the central fact of our of our belief. God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. John says, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us that's that's the incarnation uh, i don't I don't know if you ever thought about it before, but uh, every once in a while I've asked myself the question why didn't he stay? <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice to have the Lord around and uh, accessible to us? If we have a problem we want to talk over, we could just ring him up on the telephone and talk to him. If we needed to be taught on some particular subject, we could, we could listen to his teaching. I'm sure there would be some way that we could sit under his, his teaching today. Or if we, wanted, if we wanted someone to know what God is like, we could just point out Jesus and say, you see that fellow over there? Just watch him for a while and you'll see what God is like. But wouldn't that be good? Apparently it wasn't and isn't because he didn't stay. And I have to ask myself the question, why didn't he stay? And That's the answer that, that our Lord, or that's the question that our Lord answers in chapter 16. He tells us why he didn't stay. He says, as a matter of fact, It's better that he went. It's to our advantage that he went back to to heaven. Let me begin reading with verse 1. These things Jesus said I've spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. These are Jesus' last words to the apostles, as you know, before before the the Passion Week. He's on his way down to the Garden of Gethsemane, makes his way across the Kidron Valley. And as he travels across town with, with his disciples, he's teaching them. And back in chapter 15, we read of the world's hatred for the disciples. Before Jesus left, all of the hostility of the world was organized against Jesus. Now he's leaving, and that that hostility, he says, will be directed against his disciples. And he wants them to be prepared for it. One aspect of maturity is having a set of totally realistic expectations He didn't want them to go out into the world with a a, sort of a Pollyannish attitude toward things that everything is going to be, going to be fine. It it, it wasn't. There would be a lot of hostility, a lot of hatred directed against them. And that's why he, that's why he taught them. That's why he told them, he forewarned them that they could expect the world's hatred. These things that is regarding the world's hostility, I've spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. This word that's translated stumbling is a very interesting word. It's the word from which which our word "scandal" comes from, but it doesn't really mean to scandalize. It's one of these words that's changed its meaning over the years. Originally, when the when the word first came into the Greek language, it was used of a little uh, stick trigger stick that's used in a figure four trap. You remember when you were kids and you made took three sticks and cut notches in them and made a figure four trap and put a peach basket or or some kind of box on the top and. Baited the stick, and the animal would pull the stick off, and the whole thing would fall on top of it. Then, then you had to figure out how to get him out of the box once you, once you caught him. But that that was the word for the trigger stick on a trap. Then it came to refer to the trap itself. Then it, re, it came to the idea of uh, it came to refer to the idea of being trapped, and then finally to the idea of of being brought to ruin. And then the Christians picked up the word and in their literature used it to refer to. A, being brought to ruin in a special way that is a failure of faith or a crisis of faith or a test of faith or a fa- uh, uh, some failure of nerve. In, in other words, there, there'd be times in life when we'd be confronted with some obstacle, some problem, some hostility that would become for us a crisis of faith. We'd look at this thing and say, maybe I never should have become a Christian. Or what what good is it for me to be a Christian? Or, why are these things happening to me? Because I am a Christian. It's that sort of thing that this word was used to refer to. So when Jesus says, I've spoken these things to you so you won't stumble, he's talking about these crises of faith and nerve that we all run into when when times get tough. What Jesus is saying is to be forewarned, is to be forearmed. You have to know that there are hard times ahead. It's totally unrealistic to look at our life. And say that things will not, from time to time, be tough. There will be good times, but there will be tough times as well. And we might as well be forearmed against them. Uh, my sister owns a dairy in Greenville, Texas, and uh, whenever we go down there, one of our favorite sports is shooting rats in her in her green barn. Uh, so These great big rats collect in the barn, and and uh, Josh and I would go out there at night, and you flip on the light, and you have about ten or fifteen seconds of the greatest target shooting you can imagine. Then they're all gone. Then you turn the lights off and you go back in the house, wait for about a half hour, come back out, turn on the lights, and you have another shoot. It's just a great time. Last time we were down there, the door swings in like this and then it latches so that you can't get back out once the door shuts without pushing on the, on the thumb latch. So we pushed the door open and we went in there very quietly and shut the door and I flipped on the light and there was a skunk about ten feet in front of us. Josh draws on the skunk, I grabbed him, yelled, "No, no, no, Josh, And then we couldn't get out because we were locked in. So uh, finally we got out. The, the skunk didn't get too excited, so everything was all right. We got back in the house and and my uh, sister, Betty Lou said, oh, I should have told you about that skunk. <laughs> if you really love somebody, you'll tell them about these things, you know. <clears throat> And that's what, that's what, that's what our Lord is, is doing here. He's warning the disciples about these, uh, these happenings, these things that are going to come across our, uh, our path, these hard times, the difficult circumstances, the hostility that we'll experience. We have to be realistic and face into them. Jesus says, I've spoken these things to you that you may be kept from stumbling. And then he goes on to tell you, uh, the The form that this hostility will take, they will make you outcast from the synagogue, you'll be excommunicated. It's a very serious thing for Jews. Normally they would suffer economically, their shops would be boycotted, they couldn't go to the right schools. Today it would be very much uh, the sort of thing that Christians experience in Albania and the USSR and other places where to become a Christian means you're going to be economically deprived. It's going to mean you can't go to the to the good universities. You're not going to get a good job. It's that sort of thing. He said you can expect. But it's interesting. It's actually a very strong contrast. I think what he's saying is the good news is that you'll be excommunicated. The bad news is that they'll kill you. He says the hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. Remember Paul saying, I thought... I ought to do many things in opposing the church. He thought he was doing God's will. And uh, Jesus says there will be times when religious people will oppose you because they think they're doing God's will. They don't know God, but they think they do. And you, you'll be killed. You'll be murdered. And that, of course, is what happened in the early church. The story of the early church is a book of martyrs. The uh, members of that church were, uh, were banished, exiled, excommunicated burned at the stake, thrown to the lions in the arena. And they, they suffered terribly. This was a time of intense persecution, not only uh, from the Jewish community, but from the Gentile Roman community as well, during the times of Nero and Hadrian and the emperors that, that followed until the 4th century uh, A.D. Tough times, hard times. And Jesus says, I just want you to know that, that they're coming up. I have spoken these things to you, that when their hour comes, that is the hour when they kill you, you may remember that I told you of them, and these things I did not say at you, uh, to you at the beginning because I was with you. I was there, he said, I was your source of strength, I was your comfort, I was your encouragement, I was available to help you during these times, but now I'm going to him who sent me. And that, of course, is what devastated the apostles. Not only was he leaving, or not only would they experience hostility, but he was leaving. And uh, this was their, was their great concern. They were so concerned, as a matter of fact, that they had lost interest in asking questions. Uh, he said, none of you asked me where are you going, but because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your, your heart. They, had, they, had, they sank into despair. But, and here's the, here's the good word, but I tell you, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Our Lord had to go by way of the cross, through the resurrection and ascension, into glory, before he could send the the Holy Spirit. Now, we've already learned from earlier statements that Jesus makes in the Upper Room Discourse why it was so important that he go away and send the Spirit. Uh, Turning back to chapter 14, verse 15. All right, let's begin uh, reading with verse 16. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. I've been the helper up to this point, but there will be another helper who will come that he may be with you forever. Instead of just three and a half years, he'll be with you forever. That is, the spirit of truth in the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. We saw how important that is. The Holy Spirit is, is no one else than the Lord Himself, who's come back to indwell believers. Instead of being localized in one place in time and space, which would make Him uh, inaccessible, basically in, inaccessible to us today. Think of the long lines, the interminable waits on the telephone trying to get to Him, uh, the high cost of flying to Israel to have a chat with our Lord. He says, It's much better that I send the Helper. The helper is none other than the Lord himself, the Holy Spirit, who comes to indwell us, the apostles and then us. So he's here. He's available to us. He's not over in Israel. He's not up in heaven. He's here indwelling uh, us. He is our adequacy uh, for whatever we have to face. And then in verse 26 of the same chapter, Jesus says, uh, verse 25, actually, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. The Lord taught his disciples while he was with them. He would come again in the person of the Holy Spirit to continue his teaching ministry. So he will indwell them. He will teach them. And then finally, in chapter 15, verse 26, he will bear witness to the world. Now that's why he had to go away. He had to go away, come back in the person of the Holy Spirit so he could indwell continue to teach the apostles, thus making his teaching available to all of us, and he would witness to the world. Not to just one segment of the world, the world in Palestine, but the entire world. Now, I think what chapter 6 is, is an amplification on these last two aspects of the Holy Spirit's ministry. That is, his witness to the world and his teaching to the church. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's what the Spirit of Christ does. He witnesses to the world... And he teaches the church. And we need to keep those two main ideas in mind as we look at chapter 16. And he begins first with his witness to the world. And he elaborates on that, beginning with verse 8. And he, well, let, let me back up to verse 7, because I want get, to uh, get this uh, uh, verse 8 in context. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for, I, for if I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. To do what? He, when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold Me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. So He specifies the the convicting ministry of the Spirit has to do with three moral categories. He will convince the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. The, uh, gravity of sin, the reality of righteousness, and the certainty of judgment. Those are the three, uh, those are three issues that the world will know about. And they will be convinced. We don't have to convince them. It's not our witness that convinces them. Remember we said a couple of weeks ago that the witness of the Spirit is antecedent to ours. It goes before. It's not that we witness and then the, the Holy Spirit comes in behind to corroborate our witness. It's that He witnesses and our witness corroborates Him. In other words, we don't have to convince people of these matters. They already know. They just know. C.S. Lewis tells about one instance when he was walking across the campus of uh, uh College, where he uh, was a professor, and he was talking to another. Uh, uh, he was talking to a colleague, another professor on the campus there, and they were talking about Christian faith. None of them were Christians at the time. His friend said, and as a matter of fact, they were both thinking through arguments against Christian faith. After they'd gone through the process, his friend says, Rum thing. It does seem that the whole thing is true after all. He just knew. He just knew. Now, what does he know? Now, I should point out that Jesus does not say that the Holy Spirit will coerce people to believe these things. He says he will convict them. In other words, he will bring these truths home to their conscience. They will be convinced. They may choose to to act against the truth. They may choose to not believe what they're told, but they'll know that it's true. Now, by belief, I mean commitment because in a sense, they do believe it to be true. They know it's true, though they may choose to uh, to ignore uh, this truth. Now, there are three things that the Holy Spirit will say to the world and they will be utterly convinced that these things are true. The first is sin. He will convict the world of sin. Now, notice Jesus tells us what sin they're convicted of? It does not say that the Holy Spirit will convict convict people of the sin of adultery, or the sin of deceit, or He will tell them that they should not uh, use dope. Uh, there, there are some people out there in the world who know those things are wrong. There are others who are unconvinced. They have ways of of rationalizing around these issues. They may not think of them as sin. The Spirit does not convict the world of individual sins. That's not His concern, because it is not our individual sins that separate us from God. It's not the fact that we tell lies that separates us from God, you see. The the, the only sin that separates us from God is the sin of unbelief, unbelief in Christ. Earlier in in the third chapter, John's uh, comment, On Jesus' conversation with with Nicodemus. It goes like this. 318. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because He has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now what is it that brings men and women into judgment? Not their sins. It's that they don't believe in Jesus. That's the issue, you see. They haven't accepted the solution that God offered. Suppose uh, someone in this congregation came down with AIDS. You, it, it's terminal. It's fatal. There's no, uh, no uh, medicine that you can take that will cure that dreadful disease. But, but suppose some scientist discovered a cure, and they brought it to your hospital room and said, here's the cure, and you refused to take it. Well, of course, it would be the AIDS that killed you, but ultimately it's, it's the refusal... To take the medicine that uh, that that uh, the medical profession has provided that would save you. I mean, that's what Jesus is saying. It's not our sins. Those have been paid for. As a matter of fact, in, in John's little book, 1 John 2, chapter 2, verse 2, he says, He, Jesus, is the satisfaction for our sins. And not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. That means Christ died for people's sins out there, those that don't know Christ. So it's not their sins that separate them from God. It's the fact that they haven't accepted the salvation that God offers. And you see, that's what the Holy Spirit convicts people of. I've seen that over and over again. You can talk. I used to go into uh, evangelistic meetings and dorms and and fraternities. And I've I've talked to men across the table about their relationship to Christ. You can talk about religion and and they'll scoff at it sometimes or they'll ignore it. You can talk about morality. It doesn't get to them. But you mention the name of Jesus and something happens. Something happens. There's a deep down respect for that name. And I I think that's because the Spirit of God is witnessing to people's hearts about the sin of not believing in Jesus. That's the first issue that the Holy Spirit will raise in a person's mind, what about Jesus? What am I going to do with him? You see, he can—he will convince the world of that sin. The second is—is is righteousness. Now, notice how Jesus puts it. Uh, I've got to go back to John 16 um, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you no longer behold me. What does he mean? Well, Jesus always did things right. He, he he just knew how to act in every situation. He he knew how to how to talk to men. He knew how to talk to women. He knew how to talk to children. He always acted in the proper way. He knew when to be when to be hard with people. He knew when to be gentle and kind. He was tranquil when everybody else was falling apart. He had moral courage. He could stand against trends and and he could act in, in godlike ways. He was a perfect example of righteousness. Now he says, I'm, I'm leaving. Well, where's the example? Where's the standard of goodness? Well, when the Spirit comes back, Jesus says, He will convict and convince the world of a standard of righteousness. That's why you don't have to tell people what it means to be a good man or a good woman. They just know. They just know down inside. They know that cowardice is, is wrong. They, they know that, that a bitter, unforgiving spirit is wrong. They, they just know. That's all. You, you don't have to belabor the fact that, that we ought to be better than we are. They, they just know that that's true. Uh, there was an article recently in, in Time magazine about the baby boomers. Uh, it described the uh, baby boom generation. It's what they call the pig and a python phenomenon, This sort of bulge that goes through uh, from generation to generation and distorts everything. And at the end of the article, the author wrote, the, the generation idealized by Madison Avenue for its superior muscle tone and free spending habits is ruefully discovering that contrary to the promise of the ads, you can't have it all. As they moodily listen to golden oldies, the members of the big chill generation sometimes seem to prefer looking back to looking forward. They long for a simpler and dreamier time of dates at the drive-in before real life intruded. See what he's saying? We, we keep wanting to go back to the good old days. Well, I'll tell you what, I lived back there. And there wasn't anything good about those days either. But we like to get away from this life because somehow we We know that we don't have what it takes to measure up. We don't even meet our own standards, much less the standards of others. Well, where did that standard come from? It it comes from the Spirit of God, who is writing on people's heart, telling them what they ought to be. That's that standard of righteousness, you see. So he convicts the world of, of the sin of unbelief in Jesus, and he convinces the world that there is a standard of righteousness, which they fall short of. And then the third uh, issue is the uh, is judgment. He says concerning judgment, because the the ruler of this world is judged. The ruler of this world is Satan, and he was judged in the cross, when our Lord defeated principalities and powers. If the ruler of this world is judged, what about the inhabitants? Do they think they're going to escape? No, no. And what he's talking about is this deep seated sense of accountability that we all have. You can't get away from it. This idea that there's 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 a comeuppance. That one of these days there's going to be a reckoning. That we don't get away scot-free in life. That there is some some judgment coming up. That someday we're going to have to stand before God and we're going to have to answer for what we've done with our lives. You can't get away from that. You try to. You try to ignore it and forget it. But you can't because it's written in our hearts. Where would it come from? The Spirit of God puts it there. See, of judgment. Because the prince of this world is judged. If he didn't escape, why should I think I should? I've mentioned before uh, a segment in uh, that, that satirical television program. This was the week that was, or that was the week that was. Remember that TW three and David Frost was was the uh, uh, was very prominent. Showed up in a lot of the segments. There's one particular time when he was sitting behind a desk. A man comes up to the desk with a hat in his hand. Behind Frost were two doors. One had hell written across the top. The other had heaven. Frost is a Christian, by the way. And I've often thought that he you could see his hand every once in a while showing up in that, in that program. And uh, uh, the man comes to the to the desk. And he, he here's the two doors to heaven and hell. And he says to David Frost, which way do I go? And Frost says, you know. And the man says, come on, tell me, which way do I go? said, you know. And this uh, dialogue is repeated through about two or three cycles. And finally the man walks through the door to hell. We know. Nobody has to tell us. You see what he's saying? Now this is something we, we cannot evade. This is what the world is, this is what the Spirit is doing to the world. He convicts them. He convinces them of sin and righteousness and judgment of the sin of unbelief of the standard of righteousness and the certainty of judgment and they know we don't have to convince them they know there's an interesting description in the book of uh, the Acts of the Apostles by Luke of Paul persecuting the church as a matter of fact it's Paul's own uh, uh, sort of autobiography He's still connected Uh, his his own description of what happened to him on the road to Damascus. He's on his way to Damascus. As Luke puts it, breathing out threatening and hostility toward the church. He believed that it was God's will for him to destroy the church. He had letters giving him permission to put Christians in prison. On the way up to Damascus, he meets the Lord face to face. And he, uh, he, he tells the story in his own words. And he tells us something that, that does not occur in Luke's uh, description in Acts nine. The Lord said something to Paul that that Luke doesn't include in that in the in the first account. The Lord said to Paul, "Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goad, isn't it? You know what a goad is? Uh, they use them on uh, reluctant donkeys and and oxen. A long wooden shaft with a metal point on it." And, and when, when they wanted, uh, the animal to move, they did stick them. And, and I get a picture of, of the Lord following Paul around. The whole time he's breathing out threatenings against the church, going, and Paul goes, ooh, ooh. He was getting the point. And all of his hostility against the church was simply Paul kicking against these prods that God was giving him. And if you could have looked into Paul's heart, he would have known that he was guilty of the sin of unbelief in Jesus, that he was not a righteous man, despite his his efforts to be righteous. He fell short, as he tells us in Romans 7. Couldn't stop coveting. And he knew judgment was coming. And God was giving him a little shot every once in a while. Couldn't get away from it. Now, I don't know about you, but that encourages me. When I look out there at the world and I see people indifferent to the gospel, seemingly indifferent, I see them hostile toward toward the gospel, toward the church, and toward Christian faith. I don't take that at face value. I don't believe it anymore. Because I know that down underneath, they know. They're already convinced. Now, that's the ministry that our Lord is carrying on today in the world. Now, he he goes on to tell us what ministry he has to the church. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. We say, oh, I wish he'd gone on, because I would have loved to know what he had to say. You don't need to wonder what he had to say. Here it is. It's right here in the New Testament. Because as he goes on to say, when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Now, I have a lot of material here. I don't have much time to cover, but I just want to make just, uh, just a couple of comments. The, the first thing that, that we need to understand is that this passage applies... First of all, to the apostles. This is a promise to them, that he would guide them into all the truth. The Spirit of God took the things that were in the mind of God, and he gave them to the apostles. And and, and in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul elaborates on that. He not only gave them the ideas, the thoughts that are in the mind of God, he gave them the words. So the very words are inspired of God. So... These ideas, these thoughts that were in the mind of God that he describes here as the things which God has given to me, if you want the whole process, it's that God gave them to the Son. The Son then, by means of the Holy Spirit, gave them to the apostles. And what the apostles wrote down then is the word of God. As a matter of fact, Paul even uh, goes so far as to refer to this book as the mind of Christ. If you want to know what Christ is thinking, then all you have to do is read this book. So when we say it would be so good to have the Lord around teaching us these days, we don't need the Lord around teaching us any longer because everything that we need to know about our relationship to God, how to know Him, how to cultivate that relationship, how to grow in grace, how to be fruitful as a Christian is right here. And as a matter of fact, uh, the Old Testament is also said to be inspired by the Spirit of Christ. That's the way Peter puts it in his little epistle. So Christ inspired the prophets in the Old Testament, and he inspired the apostles in the New Testament. And, and what we have right here is, is the teaching of Jesus. Everything we need to know about salvation. As Paul puts it uh, in, in his letter to Timothy, in 2 Timothy, he says, This will make you wise in the salvation. Now, we need to understand. I don't have time to develop this, but I, just, I want to say it in case there's some misunderstanding. The purpose of the Bible is not to inform us on geography and geology and biology and, and politics and, and uh, 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 those sorts of things. Where it touches these issues, these matters, it is true. We can trust it to be geographically accurate or historically accurate. But the purpose of the Bible is not to inform us about history or to inform us about geography. The purpose of the Bible is to make us wise into salvation. Lead us to to know God, and to love Him, and to worship Him. And ultimately, as Jesus puts it, to glorify Jesus. You see what He says? He shall glorify me. When He discloses these things to you, what He discloses will glorify me. So the purpose of reading the Bible is to see the glory of Jesus. Now, isn't that what the disciples said about Jesus? That we beheld His glory the glory is of the only begotten, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Oh, he says, we just had him here so we could see that. You can see that in the Word. That's what the Word does for us. It leads us to know him. Now, you see why he needed to go? Why it was to our advantage that he depart? It's so much better. We, we, we have an edge on the apostles. We're way ahead of the apostles. Because we have the Lord here in our presence, witnessing to our world. Maybe it's a hostile husband or wife in, in, in your family that has no use for God or no use for your profession of faith. Or maybe it's some ministry that you're, you're involved in to the world. And, and you're, you're taking some hard shots out there because people are, are indifferent to what you're having to say. They're ignoring you. But you see, the Lord's out there witnessing to the world just as he was with the disciples that uncanny way he had of just knowing what people needed to hear at the right time. He's witnessing. And we say, I, I just wish I had the Lord around to, to teach me. You do. You do. Here it is. This is his instruction. And we can get to know him. We can worship him. We can love him. We can find out how to be like him as we read this book. Uh, this last week, I actually about the last two months, uh, I've been going through a time where I just have been utterly overwhelmed by things. It came as a result of a inadvertent statement that a friend of mine made. It's funny how one one statement sometimes will just unhinge you. And he made some statement about the ministry, and suddenly it dawned on me: boy, this job is way beyond me. The magnitude of this ministry has gotten so so much larger in the last year or so, and you know the money that has to to be raised, the programs that are going, the people that have to be overseen, and and I know in my heart that this doesn't depend on me. I've got a very, very uh, uh, helpful and uh, skillful staff and elders and leaders and others, but for some reason, I felt it all depended on me, and I just went through this terrible time of of carrying this big burden around on my back, and uh, just... A couple of weeks ago, in preparing for this, this message, it began to dawn on me what I was doing. I discounted the fact that this is a, this is my Lord's ministry. It's not mine. It's His job to reach this community. Sure, we have to witness. We have to, we have to set uh, uh, a righteous standard for them. We have to live godly lives in front of them. But, but it's the Lord's task. He's witnessing to the world. He's putting his people in the right places at the right time so they can, can say the right thing. And it's his word that has to, be, has to be delivered. I don't have to make up sermons. All I have to do is tell people again what Jesus and the apostles said. You see? It all depends upon him. Because he is just as near today as he was to the apostles. He is here. He is present in our midst and in our own lives available to us, to witness to the world, and to instruct the church. No distant Lord have I, loving afar to be, made flesh for me. He cannot rest until he rests in me. I need not journey far this dearest friend to see. Companionship is always mine. He makes his home in me. I envy not the twelve, nearer to me is he. The life he once lived here on earth, he lives again in me. Ascended now to God, my witness there to be. His witness, here am I, because his spirit dwells in me. O glorious Son of God, incarnate deity, I shall forever be with thee, because thou art with me. Let's pray. Would you ask the Lord to rid you of the of the fear and anxiety that you may be fearing this morning about uh, you may be feeling this morning about uh, your 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 task? It may be very difficult. You may be called upon to live in a situation where uh, you have a an unbelieving mate who really cares nothing for for God. And the temptation is to feel that this burden depends. It's it's all on you. Everything depends on you. Would you just remind yourself that he's there to convince that man or woman of sin and righteousness and judgment, and he's there to teach you what you need to know to be the kind of example, the sort of person that you ought to be. Or perhaps you have some ministry that has overwhelmed you. You're discouraged because things don't seem to be going well. People are not responding as they should. Remind yourself that your Lord is there to instruct you and teach you and strengthen you. Supply all the grace that you need to do what you're called to do. Lord, we're so glad that you went away and that you made salvation for us and that you come back in the person of of the Spirit to indwell us to teach us to equip us to lead us into all the truth that we need to know about about knowing you and 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 being what you want us to be and deliver us Lord from this burden that we feel to try to convict people and convince them somehow coerce them to believe the truth help us to rest in your ability to to give powerful witness to the truth help us to relax in our in our ministries and in our lives and and trust you to do greater deeds than you did during the days of the incarnation you've promised that lord we ask you to do that we we ask you to work through us here in this community to draw men and women and children to the Savior to touch many in the singles community here who are desperately looking for for something to satisfy completely missing it because they don't know you help us to be honest and open and and bold in our faith sensitive and, and gentle and loving and, and yet out front. And with our friends that are struggling in their marriages, Lord, who have no resources to cope with, with the conflict in their, in their homes. Lord, help us to graciously move into these situations and because of the instruction we've received from you in the word, from your empowering presence to give help where help is needed. Lord, we just, we want to be saving, redeeming agents in our society. Thank You for this time around Your Word. Thank You for teaching us. Thank You for being near and available to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.